Good morning. You know, along the way in my life, I've learned uh, two profound things. Two. The first is, you are what you eat. Maybe that's not uh, that profound, but the second one, I think, is. The second one is, you are who you meet. And that one getting at, for the believer especially, who it is that God places in our lives, whether someone we know well or someone who's a stranger, and how God uses people in our lives to shape us, where in a way we are who we meet. It's my, uh, I'm so excited to introduce someone to you that I met uh, long ago. Uh, he is the president of Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, and he continues on as the Henry Bast Professor of Preaching. In fact, uh, he was the very first seminary professor that I had on preaching, so uh, it's all his fault. But uh, more than all of that, uh, Tim Brown uh, is my friend, and Tim Brown is someone that uh, God brought into my life 15, 20 years ago, and used in a powerful way to crack open my own heart uh, to the love of God and love of others. And uh, boy, I'm so excited to have my friend Tim here today. I've heard him this morning already. Wait till you hear the message he has prepared for you that God has. And I uh, can't wait for you to, I can't wait to share Tim with you. So please, uh, would you join me in welcoming Dr. Timothy Brown. Thank you, Todd. I am fired up to do it again. Todd, thank you so much. West Bulls Community Church, the Lord be with you. I am grateful to Todd and the leadership team for the gracious invitation to be here. You know, I've taught preaching now for uh, the better part of 20 years. That means that probably 800, 900 men and women have some kind of fingerprint of mine homiletically on them. And when you're a professor in a seminary, you're a little bit like a parent. You love all your children equally, but some you love equally more. There, <laughs> there is, in that long list of students, uh, a really tight inner circle of the best of the best, and Todd Lanting is in that inner circle. Uh, he loves God. He loves the biblical text. He is a voracious reader, has an enormous appetite for all things Messiah, and I admire that about him. Um, that's what I think of Todd. What do you think of him? I thought you would say that. And as kind of a sidebar benefit, Todd and Jill have been good friends of Nancy's and mine for a long time. Uh, we have ascended the heights of Mount Arbel together. We've endured the withering heat of the Negev. We've squeezed our way through Hezekiah's tunnel and all of that to a great joint benefit. Thank you so much. We love being here. Uh, but may I also quickly introduce a couple of other people who are very important to me. I'm so happy on a road trip like this to have my wife, Nancy, with me. Nancy and I have three children and who each have spouses, who each have three children. That means nine. We are a blessed couple. Next to Nancy is Mike Lefebvre, who works on our advancement staff at the seminary. He's here and so grateful for him. And I'm really excited that Johnny and Annie Itterock are here. Johnny just graduated from Western Theological Seminary in May, and he's here 
to be with his old professor. And I'll tell you, Johnny Iterock is also in that tight circle, by the way. Give him some love, will you? Thank you so much. Now, I, I don't think I could be more eager to preach than I am, so I want to go right to work. Uh, we've already heard the Eugene Peterson rendition of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now I want you to recalibrate your ears to another reading of it. But before we do that, pray with me, please. Father, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of Jesus, our single concern, in whose name we pray, amen. Listen with me, please, to this uh, staggering reasoning of the Apostle Paul. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the Apostle Paul is operating with three basic assumptions. And the first one is that there is set at play in the universe a malevolent force capable of conforming us into contorted images that ill become the people of God be not conformed to this world the second assumption the Apostle Paul is operating with is that there is an equal and opposite force set at play in the universe by the living God by which we can resist those conforming powers. But by the renewing of your minds. And then the third basic assumption is this, that in order to enter into that countervailing power, you must Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So those three basic assumptions, but all of that's fairly abstract, isn't it? Kind of leaves you wondering, okay, well, what does that look like in real life? Well, actually, I think I can show you what that looks like uh, by, by telling you a story. Um, I'm, I'm not going to make up the story. Actually, every line of this story, as remarkable as it is, uh, is found somewhere on the pages of the Bible. I'll tell you where those pages are after I've told you the story, but for now, I want you just to sit back and listen in awe and wonder at the remarkable courage of two women who refused to be conformed to this world but by the renewing of their minds were transformed as they offered themselves fearlessly. Would you like to hear this story? I cannot wait to tell you. It goes like this. <clears throat> These are the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. 
Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Gad, Naphtali, and Asher. Joseph was already in Egypt. Seventy people in total came with Jacob to Israel, to Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and everyone in that entire generation. But the people of God were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied, and they filled the earth. Now, a king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And one day he said to his people, look, the Israelite people have become more prolific and powerful than we. What would prevent them to, of joining with our enemies and fighting against us and escaping the land? Let us deal shrewdly with them. So Pharaoh put taskmasters over the people of God with forced labor. He made their lives miserable. But the more he oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They were ruthless in imposing tasks upon them. One day, Pharaoh summoned the midwives of the Hebrew people, one whose name was Shiphrah, and the other whose name was Puah. And he said to them, when you see the Hebrew women on the birthing stool, if they give birth to a boy, kill him. If they give birth to a girl, she may live. But Shifra and Puah feared God, and they did not do what Pharaoh commanded. They let the boys live. News of this came to Pharaoh, and he was furious. He summoned Shifra and Puah and said to them, What have you done? Shifra and Puah said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are more vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife arrives. Then Pharaoh ordered all the sons of Israel to be thrown into the Nile. Now, there was a man from the house of Levi who took for himself a wife from the house of Levi. She conceived and bore a son. And when she saw he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took a papyrus basket, covered it with bitumen and pitch, put the baby in the basket and the basket along the reeds of the Nile. And the baby's sister looked to see what would happen to the basket. One day, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to the river to bathe, and her descendants walked along the river. She saw the basket in the reeds, and she summoned one of her maids to bring it to her. She opened the basket and saw the baby. 
he was crying. Pharaoh's daughter said, look, this is one of the Hebrew babies. Just then, the baby's sister stepped forward to Pharaoh's daughter and said to her, would you like me to bring to you a nurse from among the Hebrew women to nurse him for you? Pharaoh's daughter said, yes. So the sister brought the baby's mother to Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him, and I will pay you your wages. She took her son and raised him. When he had grown older, the mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter said, I shall name him Moses, for I have drawn him from the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and thank you to you for listening so careful. I could tell immediately that you were picking up on some of the irony of this story. You know, I once heard Eugene Peterson say that when people come to church on Sunday morning, they have two questions on their mind. The first one being, is there going to be a story? And the second one, am I in that story? Well, as you can see, there's a story this morning. It's an amazing story of God's providence and sovereign power, and you are in the story. So, but let me, so let's go back to the story and try to pick out these two things, how it is that uh, what God is doing in the story and what role we're to play in the story. Now, let me tell you, though, it's a little trickier than you think because with the exception of us being told that Shifra and Pua feared God, God is not mentioned in the story. There's no real clear evidence of what God is doing in the story. That being the case, you have to kind of look at it slant to figure it out a different way. One of the best ways of interpreting an Old Testament story is to listen carefully for any echoes of another story that you know elsewhere in the Bible. Did you hear any echoes in this story that I shared with you? I'm sure you did. Let me point them out for you. What were you thinking when you heard this? But the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. They were fruitful and multiplied and filled the land. Can anybody hear an echo there? It's the Lord saying to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the land and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the air. This story is a recreation story. God is doing in this story what God was doing in the very first story when the universe was nothing but inky blackness and God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's a creation story, but there's more to it than that. What were you thinking when we heard, and the woman conceived and bore a son and took a basket, covered it with bitumen and pitch, and laid him in a basket? And the woman conceived and bore a son and put him in a basket. Does that remind you of anything? How about this? And Mary conceived and gave birth to a son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. This is a Christ story. The child born here is a child that will live to reflect a distant glory that is still to come, and that is Jesus himself. 
And if you want to, later this afternoon, just read the first four chapters of the book of Hebrews, and you'll find out that that author interprets it exactly the same way. But there's more than that. What did you make of Pharaoh's daughter saying, I shall call him Moses, for I have drawn him from the water? Well, first of all, it's a little prideful to say it that way because you didn't do it quite like that. But nonetheless, did you hear an echo, an echo of an angel's voice saying, Mary, you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Moses is set here in this story as a great reflector of the glory of the one who is to come, Jesus himself, who will be the savior of all people. All of that is to say that even though you can't quite see it on the first blush, God is operating in this story. And I think that's kind of encouraging because in our day-to-day -day lives, it isn't always apparent how God is present in our story. Can I get a witness here? It's not always clear to us how God is operating in our story, but God is always in our story, working all things together for our good because God loves us and cares for us. You know, one of my favorite plays is uh, a play by Thornton Wilder. Do you know this name? Thornton Wilder's Our Town. Anybody ever seen a high school adaptation of Thornton Wilder's Our Town? I was actually in that play when I was in high school. And, I mean, I hate to brag like this, but I had the lead role. <laughs> I played the role of the stage manager, which is actually kind of a cool role because you only have one line, and you're on the stage for all the other parts of the play. So I got to hear the play over and over and over again, and I almost have it memorized myself. I want you to come to that place in the play where Emily Gibbs, who will later become Emily Webb and later still die in childbirth, is waxing eloquent with her cousin George, a drooling, snot-nosed, know-it-all kind of kid, and they're imagining life in our town. And she says to George, George, did I ever tell you about the letter that Jane Crowfoot's minister sent her when she was sick? He said, no. Emily said, well, he did, and here's how he addressed it. Jane Crowfoot, Crowfoot's Farm, Grover's Corner, Sutton's County, New Hampshire, United States of America. George said, what's so big about that? Emily said, he didn't stop there. New Hampshire, United States of America, North American continent, Western hemisphere, planet Earth, solar system, mind of God. Emily said, and it got there just the same. George said, what do you know about that? Well, what do you know about that? What was Jane Crowfoot's minister doing instinctively for Jane Crowfoot in her illness? He was reminding her that she would not be known to him merely by her local coordinates, Grover's Corner, Sutton's County, New Hampshire. He, she, he would be known to her by her real existence 
in the mind of God. She belonged to God. And as one who belonged to the living God, no evil, no hardship would come her way without his loving care. Now, in the tradition that Todd and I came from, we have a 16th century confession called the Heidelberg Catechism. You don't have to read it, but guys like us have to read it. The first question to the catechism is this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I, both in life and in death, am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You belong to God. Well, that's the first thing that I get from the story, what God is doing in the story. Is that pretty cool? I think it is, and the coolest thing is God is operating in your story. But now I want to reverse things. I've got to ask another question. What do you think that God is asking of you from this story? All Scripture, you know, is inspired and given for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the child of God might be equipped complete for every good work. What good work is being required of you? Well, another way of asking that, I guess, is who did you most identify with in this story? Actually, I preached this sermon once before in a large crowd, and a man came up to me afterward, and he said, I I most identified with Pharaoh. I said, Pharaoh? Yeah, because, like, if I could do this story and be Pharaoh, I would change things all around and the babies all be saved. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, but you don't get to do that. So, apart from Pharaoh, who did you identify with? Well, I'm hoping that you identified with Shifra and Pua. Aren't these interesting names? Have you ever come across Shifra and Pua? Oh, I didn't tell you where this story was found. It's the first chapter of the book of Exodus and the first 10 verses of the second chapter. And this is the only place in the Bible where these two dear women are mentioned, Shifra and Pua. Pharaoh orders Shifra and Pua, the midwives of the Hebrew people, if you see a child born and it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, she can live. But Shifra and Pua said... Uh Uh-uh, we don't live for you, we live for another king, and we will not do as you have commanded us. And they let the boys live. And then, of course, that really humorous moment when Pharaoh finds out that he's been betrayed, and what have you done? And Shifra and Pua say, well, the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women, they're more vigorous, and they give birth quickly to their children. For all the women here, I thought you might like that. May you be, if you bear children some more, just like the Hebrew women. Um, But what are we to make of this? If this scripture is to be enacted by us, what are we to do? We are to play the role of Shifra and Pua. To be present at that moment in time with the mind of God, ready to do God's will, You know, here's the crazy thing about the Christian life. You know instinctively that you're being called to do something. And you'd never know for sure when it is and what it is. That moment came in the life of Shifra and Pua, and they were ready to be obedient to the living living God. 
They refused to be conformed to this world, but by the transforming of the mind, remember they feared God, by the transforming of their mind, they offered themselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. They did what they did because God was who he is. We do what we do because the living God has made himself known in Jesus Christ and it is our responsibility to act recklessly and sacrificially at any point in time because when God does what God does in the world today, God does it through people. God can do anything he wants to do any way he wants to do it. He can snap a finger and make things happen. He can can sprinkle fairy dust and make things happen. But God has condescended through Jesus to do things incarnationally. When God does what God does in the world, God does it through people just like you. And if I may take a risk and quote Dr. Seuss at the West Bulls Community Church, you have, you have never seen anyone yuier than you. You are the yuiest person on the planet, and God is going to do something through you. Think about it. Your lives matter enormously because God works through you. Let's see if we can play this one out. When God was tired of the jangling chains of slavery, what did he do? He raised up William Wilberforce on one side of the ocean and Abraham Lincoln on the other side of the ocean. And when the Emancipation Proclamation only sent bigotry underground, God raised up Rosa Parks to sit in the front seat of the bus and Martin Luther King to billow over the bus. I have a dream. When God does what God does in the world, God does it through people just like you and me. When God was tired of the howling hatred of Hitler, what did he do? He raised up a noble scholar named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who himself was sacrificed to the howling winds of hatred, but he did it because he was a son of Shifra and Pua. When God does what God does in the world, God does it through people. When God ached for the lepers in Calcutta, whose fingertips did he use to cleanse them? Mother Teresa, when God does what God does in the world, God does it through people just like you and me. Am I making myself clear enough here? The point being, when you get up and walk out those doors, you are on assignment because in Littleton, Colorado, you are the only Bible that some people are going to read. You are the only glimpse of Jesus that some people are going to get. So you must let your pages be read perfectly clear and your gospel be a complete reflection of Jesus. All right, let me wrap this up. I've been in a college community now as a pastor or a teacher for the better part, well, not the better part, all of 30 years And when you're a pastor in a college town, when you're a professor on a college campus, on a seminary campus, there's something that you do a lot. 
you perform weddings. I mean, for a long period of time, every weekend, I saw a bride and a groom coming down the aisle. They always look so swell. She in a long, flowing white gown, he in a tuxedo. But when they ascend the steps and stand before me to say there, I do, I will, I hope, they tremble. Well, I want you to come with me to a wedding that I performed on Hope College's campus not so long ago. Uh, the day dawned bright and clear in Holland, which is something of a rarity. The day dawned bright and clear. The wind was blowing through the pine grove of the college campus. I was in my office at the seminary, changing from my ordinary dress to my clerical best. And I have to say, I looked pretty good with a long gown and a chasuable and a gold cross. My hair was neatly coiffed. I felt good about myself. I made my way across campus to Old Dimnit Chapel down to the lower level uh, to get a drink before the service started. Uh, I had to wait a moment because the flower girl was getting a drink in front of me. She couldn't see me, but I could see her. When she finished her drink, she turned and saw me in all my resplendent beauty. It was more than the little girl could take in. And then, just that quickly, she wheeled on her heels and ran off to find her mother saying, Mom, God's here. <laughs> this was a good moment for me. Uh, Todd will attest to this. When you're a pastor, you don't get that kind of respect very often. Well, her mother, though, corrected her theological error, and I know that because just as we were about to make our final descent into matrimonial bliss, she grabbed me by the robe. Her shoulder was up, her lip was curled, she had copped an attitude. And she said to me, you're not God, you're just the preacher. <laughs> well, I've thought about that, and I think she's wrong. I mean, I get the part about not being God, per se, but I am, am I not, a child of the living God? And you check me if I'm wrong, you are too. And I am, am I not, a follower of the one true Son of God, and so are you. And as followers of the Beloved, it behooves us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship, refusing to be conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds just like Shifra and Pua. Do you have your marching orders clear? Then pray with me, please. Father, for the blessing of your word, a light to our path and a lamp to our feet, we thank you. For the glory of your Son who loved us and gave himself for us, we thank you. And now for this unspeakable privilege of being called by you to serve you in the church and the world, give us the courage and the grace to do exactly that. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.